What is going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. Today's podcast is a Q&A, the regular Friday routine. So we got some good questions today. We're going to crank through these pretty quick. We only have six. I chose six out of all of them because a couple of them are more in-depth, and I want to spend a little bit more time on each. The previous episodes that were Q&As, I think I did like 15 to 20 questions, so we're going to tone it down a little bit. Um, These were picked out of Facebook and Instagram, and we're just going to kind of crank through them. But before we get into the um, questions for today, I have a few quick announcements and actually favor to ask you guys. My first favor is if you listen to the show, if you like the show and you enjoy the interviews where we actually get to interview different coaches, different entrepreneurs, or different people of influence, period – do me a favor and shoot me an email or a DM. So you can shoot me an email, Cody at BoomBoomPerformance.com, or you can shoot me a DM at Cody.BoomBoom and let me know who you want on the show next. Um, we have recently recorded some episodes with some people that I think you guys are going to be very excited about. Um, I took a break from interviewing for a little bit just to let the schedule calm down a bit, but we did uh, quite a few really, really good interviews with some really intelligent people, really cool people that I think you guys are going to enjoy listening to. I have a handful on the list over the next few weeks that I think you guys are going to love to hear. Um, some that I'm super excited, a little starstruck for a few of them, that they're coming on my show. Um, so I've been big fans of theirs for a long time, so I'm excited for you guys to hear these ones. But we want to keep growing that as we go into 2019, so please do me a favor and shoot me a message or an email and let me know exactly who you want to see on the show and why you want to hear them because then I can really dive into their story, do some research, and see what would be best for the overall audience. Um, but I would really appreciate hearing from you guys because I create this podcast for you. The second favor, as always, guys, please share this podcast with a friend. The best way to do that is to take a screenshot, post it on your story on Instagram, and tag myself at Cody.BoomBoom so I can see who's listening to the show and have a conversation with you um, and learn more about you and what you love about the show. But that really is the best way to really just get the message out there. Like We create this show, number one, to help people get better results, and number two, because I love having really cool, interesting conversations with different people from around the world. So selfishly, I do this for me as well, but a big reason I do this and a big reason we do all of our content is just to get it out there and help more people get well-educated so they can diet and train the right way. The best way you can join our movement and help us do that and reach others and impact others' lives is to simply share this podcast. So please take a screenshot, post it on your story, tag myself at Cody.BoomBoom on Instagram. But also, um, if you want to send it to a friend, if you think somebody could use this, text it to somebody, email it to somebody, Uh, tweet it to somebody. I don't care how you get it to them. Just get them the podcast because we just want to grow this and we want to get more and more people listening. So please do us that. Last but not least, the last favor I ask of you is head over to iTunes, leave us a five-star rating and review. We really appreciate the the reviews, guys. And I actually go and read these and they mean the world to me. So please do that. It helps us grow on the charts, but it also just kind of warms my heart to read what people are enjoying about the show and just know that I'm helping people seriously. So um, without any further ado, let's get on to the Q&A. All right. Our first question is from Instagram. It is from at fitness with JT. If you eat at maintenance, no deficits slash diet breaks and strength train with periodization, can you change your body comp over the long term? This is a really good question. This was a comment and they said they prefaced before the the question. This might be too long of an answer for uh, this. So do it on the podcast. And I agreed with them. Um, This is a great question. So Technically, if you were eating at maintenance, you're not taking any diet breaks. You're not taking. You're not in a deficit. You're not eating in a way that should allow any growth or loss. I mean, it's literally maintenance. So, by definition, 
eating at maintenance means that you are not making any I don't want to say progress because sometimes the progress being made inside of a maintenance phase is actually the most important progress you can possibly make simply because um, – and I was actually on – actually just got off an interview for um, Flow State of Mind podcast with Jordan Duggar and Aaron Diamond. Um, I think I pronounced that right. But we were talking about this exact thing uh, and just kind of diving into the weeds about – like how important maintenance is. And and what I told them is, you know, maintenance is your buy-in for fat loss. So if you do not have a maintenance phase, you haven't earned the right to create fat loss, to go into a fat loss phase. Now, remember too, that this doesn't mean if you've never done anything or if you've just been not tracking and you've just been free-flowing, you're maintaining your weight, you're not really pushing, you don't have any goals, and you come to me and you're like, hey, I want to lose weight, I'm not going to tell you, hey, we got to maintain first because the reality is, is you've been maintaining the last few years. That's why you're finally coming to me. But if you've done a diet in the last – shit, I would say, I mean, at most or at least 12 weeks, but ideally six months, you're probably not ready for a diet or um, an aggressive diet. Now, I get a lot of people that come to me that have dieted in the last six months and they either, A, did it the right way by having diet breaks throughout that period so their metabolic adaptation isn't a serious effect right there. They're not in a unhealthy place to lose fat, so I take them through it. Or I have people that just didn't do it the right way and we create a healthy maintenance, quote-unquote, really a healthy foundation of nutritional principles and it actually leads to fat loss, more of like a recomp. You start building muscle, losing fat in that process um, and we didn't have to go into a deficit to do that. So there's obviously caveats around this, but by definition, if you're eating in maintenance, you're not really going any one direction. So the question being, if you eat at maintenance and strength train with periodization, can you change your body composition over the long term, one plus year? Um, If we look at logic or theory, meaning... Let's let's look at what the literature shows, right? Um, if we look strictly at that, then you would say no. But this is where theory meets application. This is where literature meets practicality. Let's take what we know in the science and let's use those things in order to facilitate changes. So I believe you absolutely can change your body composition over the long term if you commit to the long term. I think that's the big caveat here is you're not going to see dramatic changes with your body composition at maintenance level calories if you're looking at this from a three-month standpoint, not even a four- or five-month standpoint. If we're looking at a year, we can kind of do things a little bit differently. So I would, I would argue a few things first. Number one – why would you do this? <laughs> it's not optimal. So people, just just to preface this before I dive into what I truly believe could happen and how I believe you could change your body composition by staying at maintenance throughout the year, um, I want people to understand that there's no reason to do that. Um, maintenance is an important part of the entire puzzle, but so are cuts and bulks, or I should say cuts and lean gain phases, right? Um, going into a deficit to lose body fat, to lower your caloric intake is a healthy thing in the short term. Sometimes people are eating too many calories. So actually just the act of eating less, not even the fat loss or the um, the after effect, the success that it creates, the result that it creates, just the fact that you're eating less is actually a healthy part for some people. Um, and and there's, there's a lot of studies that show like blue zones in different places, they're eating less calories and that's one of the reasons why they're so phenomenally healthy. So I think there's one argument to make that like there's no reason to stay in deficits for or uh, maintenance for a long time. So if you have a year... Why not have blocks of deficits and blocks of surpluses? Um, That way you are stimulating a higher level of stress that's actually going to elicit a more optimal amount of change. Um, Because there's an argument to be made. 
if you are at maintenance all year, you can make very, very small incremental gains in progress. Um, and I would argue that that's probably only going to happen if you're already set up in a very healthy and lean position. So if we start January 1st and you're already as a male 10% body fat, let's say, you can see your abs, you're really lean. I think we could stay at maintenance for the year. You could stay really healthy. We could train really hard and you would make very slow incremental PRs in the gym and therefore very slow incremental changes in your body composition over the year. And I'm talking like less than five pounds for sure gained in muscle in that entire year. So not very much. Um, or we can implement surpluses for an extended period of time. So 12 to 16 weeks, so three to four months, followed by a maintenance phase for three to four weeks, followed by a mini cut for six to eight weeks, rinse and repeat. Now we're playing uh, this undulation game of cutting, maintaining, and bulking in a, in a healthy and quote-unquote lean-ish way, as lean as possible. And we're going to get more gains because we might – total gain, you know, 20 pounds by the end of the year, cut 10 pounds of fat out of that throughout the year, and you are actually up 10 pounds versus that five. Um, and I do think that's a reasonable argument to make because science shows if you're in a surplus and if you allow a little bit of fat accumulation on your body, it actually allows you to build more muscle. So there's an argument to make about lean gaining and like ultra lean gaining, right? Even some of my clients who I have gaining right now that are super lean and want to stay lean, I'm still encouraging like, hey, let's put a little bit of fat on because when you have a little bit of fat, you're actually going to be able to build muscle at a faster rate, more effective rate. Um, but that implies every once in a while you have to add these mini cuts and maintenance phases. So um, – and this is what I'm going through right now. You know, I'm finally able to start training again. I've been at maintenance, maintaining um, less than my normal body weight just because I have a lot of muscle glycogen that lost um, temporary muscle mass that's gone. Um, but we're slowly shifting gears. We're bringing my maintenance calories up because my activity is going to go up now that I can walk a little bit um, and I can train harder. And then as we kind of build this foundation over the next six weeks, myself and my coach, we're going to learn a lot more about my body. I have a bachelor party in six weeks. I have no idea where the hell I'm going. So I want to remain relatively lean <laughs> because I don't, don't know if I'm going to be by the pool or not. Um, but this is kind of a chance for us to test my new maintenance, kind of play the whole recomp game as my muscle starts to come back on and I'm starting to rehab this injury. And then after that, I'm going to have basically almost the rest of the year pretty much. Like, I mean, my plan is at least six months of gaining um, slowly, probably take a couple mini cuts during that period of time um, until next year uh, when I want to probably, I'm, I'm not going to say get on stage, but although that has crossed my mind, but um, at least do a photo shoot and get super cut. But the process of this is going to be a year long. So like my, my thought process process goes, okay, I'll do a photo shoot in a year. So I could do one of two things relating this back to the question. I could stay at maintenance all the way until that photo shoot and make very, very, very slow progress in have to do a hard cut at the very end because I'm not photo shoot ready, or I can do this process of gaining a little bit of fat, building more muscle, building more strength, cutting down, building more muscle, building more strength, cutting down, um, and repeating that. And it's been showing to be really good um, anecdotally in what we see in a lot of natural bodybuilders right now in the industry. But I'm kind of going off on a tangent now. So back to the original question. Um, if you eat at maintenance and strength training with periodization, can you change your body composition over the long term? Yes, I believe you can. Um, I think it would be a very slow process, and this is a time where you have to play the nitty-gritty details. Like this is where the smallest details become the biggest details because the big details are not allowed to change in this scenario. This is a fake scenario. Obviously, I already said I wouldn't recommend this route, but if we look at 
maintenance, um, technically our big rocks being our caloric undulation, like us moving our calories up and down through these phases of cutting and gaining and maintaining cannot change. We can't use that tool because we're maintaining throughout the year. So in this scenario, the best thing to do is to manipulate the fine-tuned details within your maintenance in order to elicit as much change as possible. The first thing I'm going to do is program design the hell out of your year. So if we look at strength training with periodization, the smartest thing to do would probably have 12 to 16 week ultra high volume blocks. Um, Basically at your, I would probably have it at your uh, maximum effective volume. Uh, Basically, the the amount of volume that is going to allow you to elicit change but not push the recovery threshold too hard. That would be maximum recoverable volume. Maximum recoverable volume, um, and this stuff is all made popular by Renaissance Periodization. It's been known in the literature, I believe, but I think they did the best job of coining a term to all these different types of volume landmarks. Um, Great book if you guys want to dive into something. But what I would do is peak that. So basically when we look at maximum recoverable volume, we can't stay in that position because the longer we stay in that position, the more we're pushing our nervous system, the more we're pushing our joints, the more we're pushing everything on our body um, at a maximum recoverable volume. Like think about that. That is the literal, like you're dancing on the line. That is as hard as you can push. You can't do that for an extended period of time, which means that you have to do one of two things. You either A, have to cycle specific specialization phases. So only certain body parts are touching this maximum recoverable volume while all the other ones are playing in the maintenance zone or the the minimum effective, so the minimum amount of volume that you need in order to create some change, but it's not too hard. Um, Or you can push, and this is probably what I would do since we're looking at maintenance instead of a surplus, I would probably spend like 12 weeks at that normal minimum effective volume, so just slowly gaining, and then spend three to four weeks pushing maximum recoverable volume, total body, Um, So you're going hard, pushing the recovery threshold pretty hard, putting the volume ultra high, try to build as much muscle as possible and kind of peak at that three to four week mark. Then I would taper down and go through a low volume phase where you're focusing more on strength um, and neurological function and the skill behind the movements. Um, And you're dropping your volume quite a bit, probably to like the maintenance volume across the entire body. And you spend about three or four weeks there at least, but ideally like six to eight. What this is going to do is you're going to allow yourself to focus on strength. You're going to allow yourself to slow down. There's going to be a super compensation effect or kind of like a lag effect where your body finally has enough bandwidth to recover. So all the gains that you were quote unquote making during the uh, maximum recoverable volume phase, that three to four week peak, are now going into effect. You'll probably see a lot of muscle tissue being built even though you're in a low-volume phase right now, but it's because your body's able to recover. And while you're in that low-volume phase for six to eight weeks, you're also resensitizing your body to the ultra-high volumes. So by the time you go back through the cycle of 12 week, twelve to 16 weeks of higher volumes peaking at the end into maximum recoverable volume, you've now sense- had a new level of sensitivity to it. So week one your body's responding to lower amounts of volumes than it was at the end of the last phase. So you have to be very strategic with your training if you're looking at a year-long process trying to build as much muscle as possible and you're planning to do so while eating at maintenance. And the reason I would get so meticulous about it like that, like I don't think everybody needs to plan out their periodization inside of training that detailed, Um, just general populations looking for aesthetics. But in the scenario where we're at maintenance, we have to play every card we're dealt. So in this place, in this 
scenario we're kind of getting nitty and gritty. Um, so I would do that for sure. I would be adding cardio, but more of a recovery form. So on the days between lifting, I would be doing cardio to burn some extra calories just to make sure you're staying lean since we're at maintenance and we can't really optimize fat loss. Um, however, you don't want to do too much, uh, but just enough to where you're burning calories and it kind of works as a recovery in between those days. You're getting blood flow moving, you're, you're moving around a little bit more, getting your limbs active. Um, I find that works really well between heavy days to push and optimize recovery. Um, and then last but not least, I would be tweaking – I mean, the obvious things, get sleep, hydration, blah, 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 sodium in your diet, stuff like that, that's going to tweak performance. Like, you got to think about the little things that help performance, right? Getting enough sleep every night to help testosterone levels, hormone levels, recovery levels stay high. You got to have enough water. You should probably be salting your meals with some, like, good salts, like pink Himalayan salt, especially pre-workout. It's going to keep your muscles saturated. Um, I would be, and the last thing I would add is like supplementation. I would definitely be optimizing and using things like glucose disposal agents, digestive enzymes. Um, I would be taking magnesium and curcumin and all these different things that are going to help inflammation in the body from a joint perspective. Not because those are directly going to improve performance, or I mean, sorry, muscle gain, but because they're probably going to allow you to perform a little bit harder and the performance is going to build muscle. So if you took a bunch of curcumin, before or after training in fish oil, that might increase inflammation but or, or decrease inflammation, but we want inflammation around training. That's what elicits the stress to rebuild. So we're going to push those like right before bed, let's say, um, allow inflammation to fully recover overnight um, and keep those in your system so you have inflammation as low. And then the next day you can perform harder, lift heavier, volume will be more, so on and so forth. Um, and then I would also add a intra-workout carbohydrate in probably like either essential amino acids or something like PeptoPro, which is a hydrogelated or whatever, however you say it, um, hydrogelized uh, casein protein. So it's, it's, uh, it's just easier on the gut while training. So you can actually drink that protein source or the essential amino acid source during training. So that, in a nutshell, <laughs> a long nutshell, a really big nutshell, is how I would tweak everything inside of that um, to be able to change your body composition while – Staying at maintenance because by definition, maintenance means you're not changing. Woo. Got to take a swig of coffee after that one. Fuck. But that's a good example of my passion for this shit because I just love geeking out on stuff. <clears throat> stuff like that. The science. I love the science. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing I love more. James Ward <clears throat> asks, not sure when you are recording. Okay, I probably should have <laughs> left that part of the question out. In a fat loss setting, when you were adjusting, he obviously sent this question in after I recorded the previous week's episode. Um, in a fat loss setting, when you were adjusting, in quotation, increasing protein intake from someone who's eating a very low protein diet, how much do you increase it by initially? Scenario would be for someone eating around 15% of their macros from protein. So basically, when we get a <clears> – when we get – I don't know why I have to clear my throat off. <clears throat> Figaro, Figaro. That's what I feel like I'm doing right now. Um, getting ready for singing to you guys. So when we take on a client, this is extremely common, and, and for the coaches listening, I'm sure you can relate to this. Um, you get a client that comes in, it's general population, they want to lose fat, they want to build muscle, whatever their main goal is, and they come to you, and they are eating extremely low portions of protein, um, way below what they should probably be in taking. 
in this scenario, there's a couple things we need to do here. Number one, we have to increase protein, and we're going to do it sooner or later because at the end of the day, protein is one of the most vital nutrients our body needs to survive, but also it's one of the most important nutrients for fat loss or muscle gain. It's going to allow us recovery. It's going to allow us main maintenance of muscle mass while dieting. It's going to allow us satiety while dieting. We need it, period. Muscle protein synthesis, anabolic, like everything. Can't ignore protein. How do we get those people up? There's a couple ways to think about this. Now, if somebody comes to me and let's say they need 165 grams of protein, but right now they're only consuming 50 to 75 grams of protein. So I'd have to literally double their protein, more than double their protein in order to get them to the amount they need. So I have two options. Add 100 grams of protein to their diet so they get up to 165 um, or I inch it up step by step. The reality is it's going to be different for every single individual. Um, If somebody goes from eating 50 grams to 165 grams of protein overnight, I can promise you you're going to be gassy, bloated, probably have some issues with your digestive system, um, and you're not going to be happy. That's not a pleasant activity. Um, It's not a pleasant process. However, we do need to work them up to that. Now, it usually only takes a matter of a week or two to get you up that much without any issues. Like I haven't had anybody that took two to three weeks to go from 50 to 150 and seen serious issues with their digestive system. Um, Unless they have predetermined or already existing digestive stress, it's very, very rare. Or it's a specific protein that it's affecting them. Like they add a bunch of whey protein when they try to bump up their protein and it causes that. Um, The biggest issue I see with jumping protein protein up is simply it's such a satiating nutrient. Usually if somebody is really that low in protein, they're probably under eating calories a little bit too, which is fine because if we add 500 calories but it's all from protein, they're not going to gain any fat from protein. However, they're going to be bloated um, and they're going to be extremely full all day because protein is very satiating. So the way I do this is simple. It's all about educating the client and I tell the client, the reality is, is you need to be at 165 grams of protein. This is not going to happen tonight. However, in your macronutrient prescription, I am going to program it to be 165 grams of protein because by nature, that's what you need to be consuming um, to get to the result that you want to get to and to be able to do it sustainably. It's not going to happen overnight. It might take you a few weeks, but that's fine. We're going to leave it here. Here's how I'd suggest doing it. And then we can literally dial in their nutrition meal by meal until they get to that result. So it might start by saying, hey, like right now you're at 50. We need to be 165. This week, I just want you to hit 75. Like, so let's add a protein shake. That's it. Protein shake post-workout. Nothing else changes. Boom. The next week, hey, what are you eating for breakfast? Oh, I usually just have like a couple berries and some nuts. Okay, cool. Let's switch that to eggs. You can get easily 25 to 40 grams of protein. Um, So let's have a few eggs for breakfast. Boom. They get their protein up another 25 grams. Now we only have 65 grams left to work with. Cool. The next week we do something else that's going to give them, you know, 25 to 50 grams. And we just kind of inch it up. And I help them plan meal by meal by meal. For some people, you can do that every few days. Hey, you added a protein shake. Great. A few days later, let's add a chicken breast to lunch on the salad. Boom. It's more protein. Like you can do it small. I just think that the best way to do it is to bump the number up inside the macro prescription and then just explain to the client this isn't going to happen overnight, but it needs to happen eventually and explain why protein is so important because if you don't educate your clients, they're not going to stay consistent. And I truly believe that is one of the foundational keys as to why our clients are so successful in body transformations. Amanda Jessica Sagan. I believe that's how you pronounce your name. I'm sorry if it isn't. From the Facebook group, the private Facebook group, which I should probably mention, and I probably should have mentioned in the intro, but that's okay. Guys, 
Uh, number one, if you want to get in the private Facebook group, this is one avenue to doing so. But number two, on Monday, so just in a few days, you guys by this point have probably seen me post on Instagram a bunch of times. If you're on my email list, you've probably heard me mention it multiple times. FIT drops. Functional intensity training. If you're not on my email list, you can sign up for the email list by going and downloading the free nutrition hierarchy ebook, which you should probably do anyway because it's loaded with information. Um, but that allows you to get on my email list, and I give them first access to everything. But you guys will know. I believe we're going to launch it like 6 a.m. pretty early on Monday morning. I'm going to post on Instagram. I'm going to talk about it here all week. It's going to be on sale the first whole week. And I just want you to know that this is literally different than anything we've ever done. So if you've done functional muscle, if you've done programs in the Boom Boom Elite, if you have done density, if you have done functional muscle 2.0, any of my programs, this is different. The only people who have seen this program or done this program um, are uh, some fellow coaches in the industry who wrote me testimonials after going through the program, um, as well as some clients actually had beta test the program who got insane results, which I'm going to be sharing on Instagram, which by the time this airs probably already happened. But this program is revolutionary. It is different than anything I've ever done. It's unique. It's exciting. It's interesting. It's challenging. It's different every week. It shows you more variations on exercises than you know how to handle. Therefore, this program could technically last you 16 weeks. And I explain inside the book how it can be an eight-week program or a 16-week program. You can repeat each week twice. You can spread it out so you're not doing six days a week. It includes strength training and conditioning. It uses every energy system your body has and should be using in order to create the ultimate level of fitness. Like this is literally my pride and joy. It's the most detailed program I've ever written. Um, It took me longer than any program I've ever written. um, And I'm really, really excited about this. I think it's going to create a different result than most people have experienced because of the utilization of the different energy systems, the different exercise variations, and the different intensities I drive throughout the program while using only functional movement patterns, um, really. I mean, obviously, we use a bunch of different equipment inside the the program, but man, it is it is unbelievable. It's a work of art, and I'm I'm really really excited about it. You guys are gonna love it, so stay tuned for that. Be ready for that. Um, <clears throat> anyway, Amanda asked, "Does soreness in a muscle group when following functional muscle 2.0 mean that muscle is breaking down and building? Is it a good indication? Not extremely painful, but does it mean not extremely painful? Does it mean I went to failure? Is it some the same thing as afterburn? In quotes." Um, so basically, she's asking, is muscle soreness a good indication of breaking down and rebuilding? So should you get sore after training, and does that mean you're building muscle? So there's been a lot of arguments over the years on this topic because you know, muscle damage is one of the proxies for growth, right? There's muscle damage, metabolic uh, – muscle damage – no – Yeah, muscle damage, metabolic stress, and mechanical tension. I always get the M's mixed up. But basically what this means is, you know, uh, muscle damage is literally breaking down the muscle fibers, the tissues, and then your body using nutrition and recovery to actually rebuild those um, and create new muscle tissue or create bigger muscle fibers so that your tissue grows. Uh, And there's merit to that. The, the problem with this is, is if we take this out of hand, now we got a bunch of people trying to target soreness, and that, in my opinion, leads to A, joint issues, B, overtraining um, and under-recovering, which in, can more importantly or more something more important to worry about is basically the hormonal or neurological uh, – causations or indirect issues with that, right? Like if we are training so hard that we're constantly chasing soreness, 
internally, physiologically, so looking at the nervous system and our hormonal system, we're also probably doing a bit of damage there too. So that's going to put us in an under-recovered state, overtrained state. Not the best thing for hormones, fat loss, recovery, cortisol, stress, so on and so forth, joint health, and it's only a matter of time before you get hurt. Now, on the other hand, if you are training and never getting sore, you're never creating a new stress or stimulus. So there's a lot of people coming out now um, or just getting louder in the industry that are like, yo, like there's something to be said for training your ass off and grinding and training hard and being sore and pushing the weights and chasing a higher RPE because training near submax, meaning really close to failure but not absolute failure, is one of the best ways shown by science to actually elicit changes in your body. So... You know, I think the whole industry goes back and forth on it. My take on it is simple. Um, You should have a periodization plan that creates soreness, creates soreness, adapts to soreness, and then improves so much that it removes soreness. So basically, let's look at a four-week block. Week one, all the movements are pretty new. So you push yourself hard, but not so hard because you're trying to learn these new movements. But the next week you're a little bit sore. It's new. Week two, you're comfortable. You understand the movement patterns. You're ready to progress. You add weights to all the movements you did last week. You are sore as hell. So by the end of week two, you're sore. Week three, you are definitely sore. You go into week three, you progress where you can, you manage the soreness, and you notice by week four, you're not quite as sore because you're starting to adapt and get used to it. Maybe you deload week four so that week five, you're ready for a new program and you're no longer sore anymore. But during this process, we've created a new stimulus, learned the new stimulus, damaged the body from the new stimulus, and then we adapted to the new stimulus. And now we move on to a different stimulus. And I think that's the the, the scientific scientific process of of really building muscle and no matter what your goal is you should be trying to build muscle because even if you're built burning fat and you're in a deficit and you're not technically building muscle because you're in deficit you should be trying to build muscle because that's what's going to be the best training for you during a deficit um so i kind of i think the industry goes back and forth um i think it is a good indication um if you're sore so here's how i would frame it if you're sore from new movements and new training program, that's a good sign. It means you're pushing your body, you're stressing the body, and the body is trying to adapt. That's what we want. If you are sore for weeks and weeks and weeks um, or days and days and days, let's say, um, I, I, actually, I would frame it. If you're sore after a workout for like three days in the same place, like so if I had a leg day and I'm sore in my quads for three days after, I probably did a little too much damage. Um, but I wouldn't be worried. Five days, I'd be worried. Right, Because next week, it might only be two days, and the week after, it might be one, if that. Now I know. So it went from three to one in a matter of a week or three weeks. That's not that big of a deal. Um, If you're sore every week from a program, so you start a new program, and you're doing the program, and it's a four-week block, let's say, and you're sore literally every single week until you finish the program, then it's probably a little too much volume, or you're going a little too heavy. You need to drop one of the two or your RPE. Or you're, you're doing a program that is designed for muscle growth and you're dieting so hard for fat loss that you're not taking in enough nutrients to support the training you're doing. Um, that's probably not a good sign either. So I think there's a balance to be made. You should not ever not be sore, but you don't need to be sore all the time. you got to find that balance, and I think that is a good indication. Um, yeah, the afterburn is different. She asked, is it the same thing as the afterburn? It depends how you look on the afterburn or or what you're talking about with the afterburn. Usually when I refer to the afterburn, we're thinking epoxo, um, excess post-oxygen consumption. Basically, your your blood cells and your metabolism staying elevated, your oxygen consumption staying elevated uh, post-exercise, which is kind of like the whole reason HIT, high-intensity interval training, got brought up 
way back is because it increased this epoch effect, this oxygen consumption effect, um, and it allowed your body to burn more calories after the exercise was actually done. Hey guys, I wanted to take a brief moment to remind you about the Boom Boom Elite, our membership site. This is literally the perfect place for you. The reason I know this is because you're listening to this podcast, and anybody who listens to this podcast is a go-getter and an action taker. You are a person who is seeking information and education to better your body, better your performance, and finally transform your physique. I know this because people listening to this podcast really just seek results. And the one way to get better results is better training programs, but not only intelligently designed programs that actually build in progressions and avoid injuries along the way, but a place that's actually going to teach you how those programs are built. See, a lot of coaches and clients alike have insecurities about what they're putting on the piece of paper. Whether you're programming for yourself or you're programming for your clients, you probably have an insecurity or a lack of confidence in the programs you are creating. You probably question yourself. Are these programs actually going to work? Am I going to get injured along the way? When a plateau happens because it's bound to happen, what do I do? How do I adjust? How do I move through this plateau and finally start seeing results again? See, the Boom Boom Elite is not only a place to give you the programs that avoid these things and actually give you results, have built-in progressions, and make sure that you're not getting injured along the way, but it's a place that's going to educate you on how those things are actually built into the programs. So now, you have longevity in your results. You can actually adhere to them because you know what the hell is going on behind the scenes, and you can start creating your own programs that actually work and you have the confidence to know that they will work. So next time you put whatever you put on the piece of paper, you and your clients are confident and feel comfortable and actually believe in the system. Not to mention they're actually going to get results, which is the reason why we do this in the first place. So because you're listening to this podcast and because I know you're perfect for this, I wanted to take a second to just remind you about the membership site because this is the place that I spend every single day communicating with the environment, communicating with the community about training, about nutrition, about supplementation, about all the things that go into side of coaching. So if you want access to the Boom Boom Elite, click the link in the description below or go to boomboomperformance.com elite and sign up today. And without any further ado, let's get back onto this podcast. Eric Gaelic. Eric Gaelic asked, can you go, sometimes when I say asks, I say X with an X. Asks. I've always, you know, I, I need to do like a, I talk so much on calls on, and now I'm speaking. We did four, five, I think I did five workshop seminars or something in the last like a month and a half. So I've just been, it's been insane lately. It's, I love it. It's, it's, it's by far the most fun I'm, I've ever had in the industry, but I feel like I should go take a speech class or a vocab class, um, do more improv. I've done improv and had a blast. I need to do more of that because it really gets you out of your comfort zone. Um, it gets you thinking quicker. Um, need to read more fiction books. I, I'm starting and I'm just speaking out loud, but I think I need to start doing a little bit more of that stuff. I have a lot of mentors. I recommend it. I, I look up to a lot of people who swear by those things, and I think I just need to do a little bit more. But Eric Gaelic asks, can you go more in-depth on P-ratio partitioning and tips on optimizing or improving, improving it? Yeah, so P-ratio is, you know, there's, there's a lot of different, like, ways to look at it. Um, inside of literature, I believe they refer to this literally as protein ratio, and basically it's kind of the, um, it's kind of the ratio between building and burning protein, essentially, right? Expending or utilizing protein as fuel. Um, the lower your protein, 
P ratio, the better, the higher, the worse. Because if, if your P ratio is very high, that means during exercise you're burning protein and you're not burning stored fat or carbohydrates, which is, are the two main sources we want to utilize as fuel because stored protein is quite literally muscle and we don't want to burn muscle during training. We want to build muscle, right? Um, so we want a low P ratio. The unfortunate side of this is that uh, it's mainly genetic, right? Like most of your P ratio is going to be determined by your genetics. And we all know genetic freaks in the gym who stay lean, stay muscular, have like perfect muscle bellies, who can lift really heavy, so on and so forth. Those are people that likely were genetically gifted with a great P ratio. Um, Now, there are some things that can help us with P ratio. The first thing to remember is that we do want an optimal P ratio. If we have a better P ratio, it means our body is more metabolically flexible, essentially. Our body is going to partition calories. And some people can look at P ratio kind of like a partitioning ratio. How well do you partition your calories? When I ingest food, am I taking protein and using it for recovery and muscle tissue? Am I taking carbs and storing it as glycogen for performance? And am I taking fat and am I utilizing it for or low-intensity activity and hormonal and neurological processes. That's a great partitioning ratio. I ingest calories, I digest well, I absorb well, and I utilize the calories efficiently. I'm going to stay lean and probably build muscle if that's the case. If I'm inefficient at calorie partitioning, then I'm not partitioning things in the right area. I'm probably going to store more body fat. I'm not going to burn as much body fat during exercise or at rest, so on and so forth. I'm not going to build as much muscle. I'm not going to store glycogen as well. Um, So there's some things that you can potentially do to improve that. One of them being health. If you just generally focus on your health, you're going to be in a good place. The reality is, is your nervous system, testosterone levels, thyroid function, these main precursors, these main hormonal processes actually have a pretty big uh, influence on P ratio and on general calorie partitioning. So the healthier we can be, the, the more we can manage stress through our sleep and our environment, so on and so forth, the more likely we are to have a positive P ratio balance, a beneficial P ratio, and a beneficial or a really good calorie partitioning rate. So we want to target health in general. We want to manage stress really well because we want to constantly prioritize um, staying lean, being healthy, optimizing hormones, and therefore having a better calorie partitioning rate. Um, after that, we can somewhat train for it. Um, This is, again, genetic, but if you are strength training or using a high volume, aka you're using a lot of muscle groups throughout the week, you're more likely to have better calorie partitioning. You're going to have a better P ratio simply because you're strength training. Resistance training in general enhances P ratio, um, and it's going to be best done through strength training. So if you're doing a bunch of cardio or your exercise is strictly golfing, which nothing wrong with golfing, but it's not dramatically intense in a high-intensity fashion or a muscle-demanding fashion, Um, not that you don't use muscles for golf because you absolutely do, but there's a select range of muscles you use versus a bodybuilding program where I'm hitting everything head to toe at high volumes. That's going to encourage a better P ratio, a better calorie partitioning ratio. I can meal time a little bit more effectively so that I am, let's say getting a 12 hour fast every night to allow my insulin to be, be lower and to allow digestion to be a little bit better, which is going to make my absorption rate a little bit better. I can time my carbohydrates better around training to, again, facilitate better insulin levels and better partition nutrients. Um, I can lose body fat because losing body fat is going to drop insulin levels. 
uh, better insulin sensitivity directly correlates with better P ratios. So there's a lot of little things you can do. They're all like one to five percenters. Um, glucose disposal agents, digestive enzymes, probiotics, things like that can all improve P ratio. But what it really comes down to, if we're being realistic here and practical, number one, genetics, which we can't control. Number two, optimizing health and digestion. The more you can optimize your stress, your health, your testosterone levels, your thyroid levels, um, train hard, just like all the basic stuff that we normally do, the more dialed in we can be across the board, the better our P ratio is going to be, the better our calorie partitioning is going to be, and the more muscle we're going to build and the more fat we're going to burn. That's just kind of how it works. All right, this question is a long one, so bear with me. I'm going to try to answer this the best I can because it's very specific, I think. Um, Rhiannon Healy asked, how long do you usually put people into a maintenance phase post-reverse? Is it possible to do mini cuts during that time after X amount of weeks? Going on with that, if the person doesn't lose any weight during that mini cut, even if they are in a 25% plus deficit, would you say that their reverse wasn't over and you need to get their calories up higher or that they need to stay at their maintenance for longer? i.e. you dieted too soon and you need to get their metabolism happier for a longer period of time before you start pulling calories out. Part three to the question, what does training typically look like when you have someone who is metabolically adapted and you are reversing them up? For argument's sake, let's say this client isn't a cardio bunny and is already doing strength three to four times a week. Do you make adjustments if the person is willing or do you keep that same focus, do you keep that the same and focus on calories? Finally, if you if someone got stage lean and reversed out of it, are they in a better position for success if successful fat loss if they complete the reverse slash maintenance phase properly? There's a lot to talk about. Uh, there's a lot of talk about body fat set point, but with a reverse, I feel like if that client puts on 10 kilograms or more, their end reverse weight would would be their new body fat set point. Whew. Whoa. This is, and I don't know if this is if this is how this is, Rhiannon. But when I read stuff like this, I always think asking for a friend. But hypothetically, and then you go into all this detail. It's like exact situations and scenarios. Um, so most likely, this is about you, or it's about when your clients. I assume, which is great. I'm more than happy to answer this stuff. I love this stuff. Um, so the first part of the question. Let's just kind of do this question by question because it's multifaceted. How long do you usually put? people into a maintenance phase post-reverse? It all depends. Um, how long were they in a cut? How long were they in a reverse? Um, how much weight did they put on during the reverse? Uh, what's their lifestyle like? What's their training like? What's their ultimate goal? Um, if I have, like, so for example, if I have somebody that comes to me and they're like, hey, I'm going to be with you for a year. My ultimate goal is to be jacked. Like I want to have a good amount of muscle. I want to look like an athlete, but I want to be lean. Um, and we got plenty of time. I'm in a reverse right now. I'm going to put them through a longer maintenance because the longer we stay at maintenance, the more muscle we're going to put on. Um, and that might allow me to get them in a surplus occasionally to build more muscle, to repair their metabolism. It's just the longer we stay in maintenance, the more set up they are for fat loss, period. So if somebody came to me and they did a 16-week cut and they followed that up with a, let's say, 16-week reverse – my hope would be that we could do a 12 to 16 week maintenance, three to four months, honestly. Um, but if they did a reverse, you could argue that, you know, like at least four. I've seen people maintain for four weeks and then jump into a cut and it worked well. And I've seen people need 12 weeks of maintaining before even 
getting close to a cut. Um, is it possible to do mini cuts during that time after X amount of weeks? Yes, it is possible, but um, not always likely or beneficial. And I say that because you're kind of just playing and teasing the body. If you truly don't believe that um, you're in a place to cut for a long haul, what makes you think that your body's going to respond to a mini cut? Right, like so. If, if we take you through a verse and we're four weeks into a maintenance, and you're like, "Man, I'm just fluffy. I just don't feel good. I need to go into a cut. Um, I need to do something about this." And we go, "Hey, your body definitely would not respond to a long-term cut. Let's say tw- 16 to 20 weeks, like a good size cut. Um, your body's probably not going to respond to a mini cut either. It's not going to respond to any deficit. So the last thing I'm going to do is put you through a mini cut and then tamper with your metabolism and hormones and your mind because you're really hoping that your body's going to like." respond and cooperate with you for the next six weeks like that's just torture um so a lot of times it's not smart however i've had plenty of people who go through a reverse diet and a maintenance phase where we put them into a mini cut and it does work it shaves off weight and we got to remember too sometimes it's just water weight and that's okay Uh, we got to remember that when we are reverse dieting when we are bringing up calories into a surplus anything that has to do with raising calories our body quite literally has more food bulk in our system and we're going to retain more water and sodium because for every gram of carb, we store three to four grams of water. We know that we're going to retain more sodium, especially because more food equals more possibilities to add salt to foods. Um, so there's a lot of reason why your weight's going to be up. We do a mini cut. You drop four pounds in two, three weeks. Three of that is water, so a half a pound of fat is lost. That's fine because you feel more comfortable. You're less bloated. We got rid of the water weight. Now we can go back to it, and it wasn't long enough to create any metabolic adaptation. So sometimes it does work, and sometimes it's more of a mental thing like, hey, let's just get out of a surplus for a little bit just so you feel better, and then we can get back to it. Um, But in most cases, it's probably not going to be beneficial, and it can be something you test like, hey, let's do this for a week or two. If your body doesn't respond, that's just the signal saying, hey, you weren't done yet. One to two weeks isn't going to ruin metabolic, your metabolism, or your hormones. And I've used that too, just to educate a client. Like, hey, I don't think you're ready, but I'm willing to take you through one to two weeks because I don't want you to go somewhere else and do this for 12 weeks. So let's do it for two. If it responds, great. We'll keep going for a little bit longer and try to cut as much fat as we can in a mini cut style. Um, But if it doesn't respond, it's a good sign that you're just not done with the reverse. Going on with that, if the person doesn't lose any weight during that mini cut, even if they are in a 25 plus percent deficit, would you say that the reverse wasn't over and you need to get their calories up higher? Absolutely. The reality is, is if you cut 25% of calories, you should absolutely lose weight. That's a lot of calories. If two weeks goes by at that caloric deficit and nothing has changed, you need to get your calories back up, especially if you've maintained the exact amount or gained a pound or two. The reason I say that is because if you didn't even lose water weight, that means that you're probably retaining water from stress, which tells me that you cut that 25% of calories for this mini cut. It didn't work, but it stressed your body's body out even more, sent cortisol even higher, and your body is retaining fluids because of that cortisol raise. That's not going to be conducive to building muscle, losing fat, health, so on and so forth. So if you didn't lose any weight, like if let's say you weighed 150 pounds, you went into a mini cut at 25% and you maintained 150 pounds for two full weeks or you went up a pound, that tells me that you're retaining even more water um, and you're not dropping any water from even though you've dropped a ton of carbs based on doing a deficit, which usually means if you're doing a 25% cut, there's no way you're just pulling fats, uh, which wouldn't be a good idea either. That definitely tells me you need to bring your calories back up. 
Um, and yes, or she said, or that they need to stay at maintenance for a little bit longer. Absolutely. I think that that's a good sign that maintenance just wasn't done yet. Usually you got to think about like, okay, so if I dieted for 12, 12 weeks, or let's say we dieted for 16 weeks and I did a mini uh, reverse for eight weeks and now I'm at maintenance. So half the time it's a pretty efficient and aggressive reverse, which is good for health. You're probably going to want to stay at your maintenance for at least as long as you reversed or as long as you cut. And it's a hard process for people to buy into. And I have to, I have clients where I literally educate them every week, the same thing. Like I talk them off the ledge every single week and tell them, Hey, this is part of the process. Hey, this is what we're doing. Hey, this is why you're at maintenance. And I have no problem doing it. And I gladly explain in massive detail, like long emails week after week, because I know that's what they need. And the reality is I'm here to do that. I'm a coach, so I'm going to talk to you from that point. Um, so I think it's just something that we need to remember. Part three to the question, what does training typically look like when you have someone who is metabolically adapted and you're reversing them up? For argument's sake, let's say this client isn't a cardio bunny and is already doing three to four times a week of strength training. Do you make any adjustments if the person is willing, or do you keep the that the same? Um, it's all about adherence. So if somebody tells me, hey, I can train three days a week and that's that, then it is what it is. Um, naturally, as you consume more calories, you are going to push intensity higher because you have more energy. So I don't really have to do anything because it's auto-regulated. You are just naturally going to train a little bit harder um, and that's going to make do and help you burn those extra calories you're taking in, plain and simple. The other caveat to that is if I can control it, if somebody says, hey, I train three days a week right now, but I'd train five if you wanted me to, I'd probably slowly ramp up volume um, because your body can handle it and you're going to use, especially if we're bringing carbs up throughout a reverse and into maintenance, you're probably going to um, utilize those carbs more efficiently and uh, it's going to lead to better results, more muscle gain, uh, more strength performance. So I'm going to raise volume if I can. And if somebody can't do more days in the gym or spend longer time per session, um, like their, their, their split and routine and and time in the gym is set in stone, I'd probably add like AMRAP testing. So if we did like three sets of five bench press, I'm probably going to add a set of AMRAP after their last set. So they do five reps, five reps, five reps. Let's add a fourth set. I want you to peel 25% off and do a drop set of as many as you can. Simple way to add a ton of volume, or I might do um, a AMRAP test set. So every third set, you're doing five plus. So we do five, five, and then five plus. You might find that you're doing your RP of nine, what you think is like a six rep max, and you're doing five reps for it. Great. Then you do your third set, and it's an AMRAP test, and you end up doing twelve. And there was actually a study that that Eric Helms put in Mass Research Review that talked about this. And people put their ten rep max on the barbell bench press, and then they had a spotter and they did as many reps as they can, like two absolute failure. And uh, I think there was like the smallest percentage of people. It was like ten to twelve percent of people did ten to twelve reps. Everybody else did sixteen reps or more. There was like it was like thirty percent of people did sixteen plus. 25% did 18 plus, and then there was like 21% who did fucking 26 to 30 reps with their 10 rep max, which means that a lot of us are underestimating their our, our potential under the bar. So in this scenario, I would probably educate my client on that saying, hey, this is the reality of most people, and that doesn't even include the people who are reverse dieting and getting more fuel on a weekly basis. Knowing this and knowing that we're taking in more energy, let's really encourage you to push it a little bit harder in the gym. Add some AMRAP sets, some drop sets. Any way we can add a little bit of volume because you got the fuel to do it. Finally, last part of the question. If someone got stage lean and reversed out of it, are they in a better position for successful fat loss if they complete the reverse slash maintenance phase properly? There's a lot of talk about body fat set point, but with a reverse, I feel like if 
that client puts on 10 kilograms plus, their end reverse weight would be their new body fat set point. Um, yes and yes. So you're right. It would be their new set point technically because, you know, there, there's – so there's two things. There's a body fat set point and there's a body fat settling point. Settling point is something that we can adjust and manipulate. Set point is where our body is already predisposed to going. So someone is going through a stage – process getting on stage, um, they're definitely going to be more successful the next time they do a fat loss phase if they complete a reverse diet slowly and then have a maintenance block, 100%. It just gives the time gives the time needed for the metabolism, the hormonal adaptation to fade away and actually repair itself. Um, the second part where you said, uh, I feel like clients put on 10 kilograms they're, at the end of their reverse, wouldn't that be their new body fat set point? Yeah, it would if you stay there. The settling point is something that we implement maintenance phases for in order to facilitate a new maintenance. So if we cut and we get leaner and we drop weight and we get to our leanest level, we should therefore add a maintenance phase there. So maybe reverse a little bit or try to maintain that leanness for a good few weeks, then inch up slowly to our new maintenance. And this is where a lot of people go wrong. They do a cut, stage prep, anything. They go, oh, my maintenance before I got this lean was 2,500. Let me go up to that. No, 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 no. When you finish your stage lean, you have to go, okay, where is my new maintenance? I'm not trying to cut anymore. Where is my new maintenance? It might be 1600 at this point. You go there and you spend a little time there. You reverse cardio out first. Then you inch up calories slowly until you get to a maintenance phase. Then you stay at that maintenance phase at your highest maintenance phase possible. So as you're inching up, let's say you only get to 2300 calories, which isn't as high as it was before you started dieting, but it's high enough to have good biofeedback. That's your new maintenance. Don't try to press it so hard that you get all the way back up to the highest calories you've ever been at because the reality is calorie set points are also determined by how much body weight you carry. The more body weight you carry, the more calories you have to burn to support life function and your movement throughout the day. So if you cut weight, you cut body fat, by nature, your set point is, is lower. Your body is not physically burning as many calories to survive and to move. So you need to understand where your new metabolic maintenance is after diet and you need to stay there for a little bit so you can create a new body fat settling point. That's going to encourage your body fat set point to be lower in the future. So it is definitely a process, but absolutely you need to have a reverse. You need to have a maintenance. This is why periodization of your nutrition is just so damn important. You got to think about all these things. This is what got me into all of this. Honestly, like I've always been a training guy. Like I just love training. But once I got on stage and I just screwed myself afterwards with no coaching support, I went didn't go through a reverse, I gained a bunch of weight, and I started thinking about all the ways I could have helped my metabolism along the way so it didn't rebound and so I had a plan afterwards. That's when I started discovering nutritional periodization and got so into nutrition coaching in the first place. And this is what, six years ago, five years ago, four I don't know how long ago, years. All right, last question of the podcast. Ryan Goodchild, what's something, training, personal development, etc., that you believed 12 months ago that you've now done a complete 180 on? What changed your view? Thank you. Whew, that's tough, man. So 2018 in March. What was I thinking? Hmm. It's tough because – so there's two sides of this. Number one, I haven't changed much. Um, and I think the reason why my coaching has grown, why my podcast, my Instagram, um, I have experienced success in the last year 
uh, with everything in my life is because I kept it so fucking simple. And I didn't try to go outside of my scope of practice. I didn't try to go outside of my, uh, my superpower or my zone of genius. I kind of stuck to what I knew, tried and true, what I was great at, like coaching and education. And if you look at everything I've done in the last year, I haven't stepped outside of that. I don't claim to know funnels. I don't claim to know ads. I don't claim to do anything besides teach and educate both my clients and the communities following me. So I think from one side of this is I changed so little that it really benefited me. Um, Now, if I think about what I believed 12 months ago, I feel like I got to give you something um, that I've I've changed my mind on. Um, I I think it's that uh, maybe – the more advanced you get, the more advanced your techniques need to be. Um, I think I be- – and that goes for everything, right? In business, um, I thought that, you know, okay, things are going now. We got to do funnels and ads and, and we got to start, you know, investing in X, Y, Z. And No, like I just needed to do honestly tw- 10 times more of the shit I was do- already doing, the basics, right? Get a better camera to film with. Get a better mic to record with. Do more Instagram posts. Do more blogs. Like build a team of coaches instead of just one. Like it wasn't anything new. It was just more of what I was already doing. Inside of training, um, there wasn't like, ah, okay, now I'm getting so advanced. I need to do these crazy techniques and stuff. No, I just need to do more of the basics. I can handle more of the basics. So I do more of the basics. Um, It takes me longer to see progress. So I got to stay consistent with the simple shit. Um, So I think the most important thing that you could take away from that is, you know, like the biggest thing I believed 12 months ago was probably just the fact that as you get more advanced in any area of your life, the more advanced your techniques need to be. And the reason I've done a full 180 on that is because everything – I've tried that it's been more advanced has just complicated things. And every time I kind of go back to the basics and I just simplify things and I actually just focus on doing more of or higher quality of the basic stuff I've already done for years, the better results I get in every area of my life. So instead of making it more advanced, get more specific or not even more specific, get more consistent um, and do more of the simple shit. (laughs) 